0: In 2003, I drove across the country from law school in New York to summer jobs in Los Angeles with two of my law school girlfriends. We were all Asian, and this was the time of SARS, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. So uh, while we felt a lot of eyes on us and repeatedly joked to ourselves, no one cough or we're never getting out of here in a lot of small towns, which wasn't so much of a joke, I should note, as us trying to make light of a painful reality. But amidst all of that, we never felt like we couldn't stop at a gas station, or that we couldn't find a place to stay at night, or that we couldn't find a public restroom to use. However, these restrictions around all of those things were reality for generations of Black Americans. And the legacy of those restrictions continues to reverberate and impact us today. And that's why our conversation is so important. Yeah. Today, we get to speak with Candace
1: Taylor about her carefully researched book about the Green Book. And her book is called The Overground Railroad. Doesn't the title alone make you want to hear more? We not only discuss the immense hurdles and realities for Black people who were just trying to go somewhere by car, but we also discuss topics like sundown towns. And side note, you may be surprised to hear that You might be living in one now, historically speaking. Um, You will talk about how institutionalized racism appears through overpasses and what we can all do to make change right now. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Don't forget to buy our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism and leave us a review on Amazon. All right, Candacy, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience?
2: My name is Candace Taylor, and I'm the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America.
1: Overground Railroad is truly a brilliant title, and it's basically the culmination of years of traveling to and documenting any existing sites that were named as friendly to Black people during that generation where the Green Book was in publication, sort of the early 1900s to mid-1900s. And so to kick it off, I was really curious, what was that like for you? You know, How did it feel spending time visiting these sites, especially when you have the juxtaposition of your stepfather's stories with the research that you were conducting?
2: Well, you know, yeah, the Green book was published from 1936 to 1967. And, yeah, you know, those were critical times in terms of Black civil rights history. And even though I had taken Black studies courses in college and I'm a Black woman and I've been traveling the U.S., I've driven over half a million miles throughout the country over the last 25 years, documenting all facets of American culture in terms of gender and race and labor. So, You know, this is after having written several books, when I stumbled onto the Green Book by accident, I was commissioned to write a travel guide on Route 66. And 95% of all the books that have been written about Route 66 have been written by white males. And I just, it was interesting because I found out that half the counties on Route 66 were sundown towns and sundown towns were all white communities. They were all white on purpose. And they were scattered throughout the country. This was not just a Southern thing during the Jim Crow era where they had the colored signs. This was pervasive throughout the country. And I thought if half the counties, there are 89 counties on Route 66 and 44 of them were sundown towns. It's like, well, how in the world did Black people drive Route 66 then? And that became, then I was off to the races because I guess most of the People who had been writing about Route 66 either didn't ask that question or hadn't stumbled onto that reality, but because that was my reality, and especially being a black woman, I just I had to dig further. And I called my stepfather, as you mentioned, Ron. He grew up in the Jim Crow South in Tennessee, and I called my parents. My mother answered the phone, and I said, "Oh my God, you know, do you know about this thing called the Green Book?" And she said, "No." This was like 2013, so this was a long time before the film and before. Most people had not heard of the Green Book at that point. But my stepfather, Ron, he knew, he remembered. And that started a very unique and powerful relationship that we had until he passed. He died the first week I started writing Overground Railroad. But he was a critical, kind of like a guardian angel throughout the whole process of writing it. But also while I was on the road, I've driven over 70,000 miles documenting Green Book sites. I've documented over 6,000 of them now. But in those early stages, you know, I there were these long, long hours and days on the road. And I would talk to Ron and we would talk about race and his history. And he would tell me things I'd never known that had gone on in his life. So he becomes a narrative thread in the book. And it was kind of one of those lucky accidents that happen, you know, but it was bittersweet that he passed. But then he becomes this you know, narrative thread that uh, had he not passed, he probably wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have written about him so much, but I think it humanizes the story. And um, yeah, so thank you for mentioning Ron. We miss him. I think that it's so hard to go through losses like that.
1: And it's such a gift now that more people know about him and his life and how real life history is intersected with the life of a human being. So thank you for sharing that. You know, you mentioned sundown towns. And I wondered if we could spend a moment backing up and talking about what sundown towns Were Because that was one of the main reasons the Green Book even became necessary. And I know, was it James Lowen? Like, it was only in the 2000, 2005, maybe, that he finally explored and exposed what these towns were. And it's shocking, because I think I'll post in our show notes, there's like a website where you can actually go through and find what towns were sundown towns in your area or where you grew up? And my jaw dropped looking at at the names of some of these areas that I'm very familiar with. So can you talk a little bit about what sundown towns were and what it was like at the time, what was happening?
2: Yes. And thanks to, like you said, James Lowen was the premier historian of sundown towns. And he's really critical because to sundown towns were all white communities. But the way that James Lowen had focused on how he determined what a sundown town was was that he looked at the census records and he could see that at some point there was a moderate population of black folks in the town, and then overnight there were none. They had been run out of town. And generally, the story was like in many places you see now. We have Tulsa, the you know race massacre in Tulsa, the Greenwood District, all of that. You know, usually spurred by this random you know, accusation of a black man attacking a white woman. And then there's this white mob violence that ensues. And then all of a sudden, everybody's, you know, all the black people are run out of town. And it becomes a sundown town, meaning that you cannot be there after 6 p.m. Sometimes there would be a bell that would ring at 6 p.m. because, of course, they still needed the laborers. They needed their domestics and the cooks and people to come in and actually serve the community. So black people would be allowed in to work during the day, but at 6 p.m. there would be a bell that would mean they would have to leave. So there was never anybody, if you were caught in a sundown town after dark, there could be severe consequences and possibly deaths. So they were very serious. And some counties would have a sign posted on the county line saying, and word don't let the sun set on you here. And like I said before, these were pervasive. Really, it was more, they were more popular in the north and in the western part of the United States than in the south. For instance, you know, in James Lowen's research, you know, he found there were 265 Green Book sites in Illinois, but only two in the whole state of Mississippi. And Mississippi is the premier, right, you know, symbolic civil rights, you know, where everything was really bad for Black folks. And yet there were only a couple of sundown towns. And there's reasons for that, you know, because a lot of the laws and behaviors and doctrines of how you could be Black in those places was already very well outlined. So most Black folks knew where they should and shouldn't be. But once the Great Migration was underway, when the Green Book was in its most popular decades, the second wave of the Great Migration was underway. And you've got a couple of million Black folks during those decades literally leaving, fleeing racial terror in the South and heading North. And so this influx of all of these black folks coming into places like Detroit and Los Angeles, Los Angeles was surrounded by sundown towns. You know, any of these major destination cities where a lot of black people relocated, there were all of these other rules that had to be put into place to keep the races segregated. So whether it was redlining or urban renewal and sundown towns were a part of that history. So one thing I wanna say about James Lowen that I so appreciate, because he was an older white man, he could go into these sundown towns and hang out for a couple of days. And as much as they would say, because I was, I knew James, and he passed, you know, last year. And uh, we miss him too. But I was thankful that, you know, about five years before he passed, you know, write about sundown towns in my book, but I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I always was referring, I would go back to him and say, James, you know, what's going on here? Oh, wait, let's call him Jim. But because he was a white guy. He could hang out and they would say, oh, no, no, we don't have that history here. We don't know what you're talking about. Or, you know, there's no like nobody can find evidence of the signs and all of this. All this stuff has mysteriously disappeared. But after a couple of days, you know, somebody eventually would say, you know, yeah, there was a sign and it was there. And yes, we did have all this, you know, paraphernalia and all these signs, but we destroyed them but he was able to get that information. And somebody like me, being a Black woman, I never would have been able to get that. So, yeah, I hope your listeners do read his book, Sundown Towns, because it really introduced the country to this hidden history that many of us didn't know about.
0: I love that. I don't love the Sundown Towns, obviously, but I love that his research, right? And your book illuminates this concept or or the idea of the great migration and how these sundown towns existed in places outside of the south and largely because of the reasons you were talking about i mean i in your book you talk about burlingame california being a sundown town and sarah that's where we took our photos and that is you know where my kids play soccer nowadays and they wouldn't have been allowed in there after you know 6 p.m nor would my husband and so I think that's such an important part of history that we have not been taught. I wanna talk a little bit more about history and in particular Route 66, because that chapter in your book was really powerful for me because it's something that, as you mentioned, Nat King Cole sang about, even though it wasn't necessarily a route he could travel easily or comfortably or at all at times. And so could you talk us through a little bit or take us through really what it would take a black family to drive route 66 and you know some of the obstacles that they might face because i grew up in pasadena california and i at the end of route 66 you talk about you know pasadena not being a place where people can stop and growing up biracial in pasadena even in the 80s and 90s i can see it's sort of that lasting influence there so i'd love to hear a little bit more about what that was like
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think Route 66 stands out because it's that iconic. It's just got that nostalgia, you know, let's celebrate the good old days and jump in our Airstream trailers and life is grand. And it's so symbolic of who we want to be as Americans. Right. And when we are at our best, I mean, there are these moments where we want to celebrate that, but that's just simply not our history. It's not our truth. And, you know, Route 66 passed through eight states So traveling from, say, Chicago is where it starts, and it ends in Los Angeles. And like you said, Pasadena goes through right before it goes to downtown LA and then Santa Monica. But the average Black family at that time, you know, it would take weeks to prepare for a road trip because you couldn't just jump in your car and go. You had to usually have a gas can in case somebody wouldn't serve you gas. There were plenty of gas stations that would not serve you. Esso was a great brand. Their Standard Oil, which is ExxonMobil today, ironically, they actually did serve Black folks. And you could actually use the facilities because some stations would let you get gas, but then they wouldn't let you go to the bathroom. So you had to make sure you had, they would travel, Black families would travel with partitions with big sheets that they'd put up to kind of create some kind of privacy wall. So if you had to Use a bathroom outside, camping gear was often necessary. It wasn't camping because we wanted to camp, it was because nobody would allow us to sleep overnight. So we have complicated history as black folks with camping and celebrating the idea of sleeping outside because it harks back to a history where we didn't have a choice. And and then you had to deal with, you know, if your car broke down, God forbid, what would you do? Or who would help you? So there were garages in the green book that were really critical. And of course, when you were traveling or getting ready for this trip, you wanted the green book because it would take you to these neighborhoods where there were all kinds of black businesses. There were black tailors and there were department stores. I mean, Bronzeville in Chicago was a huge neighborhood and had a huge feature in the green book. Of all these department stores, there were black insurance agencies mecca of Black businesses. So that's why when we talk about this history and so many times, it's easy to default to like, oh my God, how horrible and how sad. But what the Green Book shows us is that there was a lot of vibrancy and community that was so supportive and self-sustaining for the Black community. And, and there's moments where you can really celebrate that. But yeah, no, on Route 66, You would go, you know, start in Chicago and then pass through maybe five or seven sundown towns before you got to Springfield, Illinois, which was the next stop where you could, you know, find places that were in the Green Book. But you had to have a plan. You couldn't just randomly hit the road and hope for the best. You know, that was not a strategy that was widely used. And I think again, I mean, when you look at, and in Pasadena, you know, there was the pool that had, quote, unquote, International Day. And that was the only day that Black people could swim in the pool. And it was the day before, it was when it was at its dirtiest. It was the day before they were going to clean the pool. And so I believe it was Tuesdays or Wednesdays was International Day, quote, unquote. So, you know, I think for the most part, driving Route 66 was like kind of a minefield. You just didn't know if, you were going to come across a sundown town at the wrong time of day. You didn't know what was, you know, there was a, what was called Fantastic Caverns, which was a drive-through cave that was this really kitschy, fun, just you drive through a cave. It was this, you know, novelty idea that a lot of people loved it. It was really popular with tourists. And then all of a sudden, you know, you realize that was run by the Ku Klux Klan and they had their, cross burnings inside. And, you know, how would you know that that was a place that the Klan was, you know, was running? So it was, like I said, it was kind of like a minefield. And yet
1: that freedom that a lot of Black families felt in owning a car was really important. So could you talk a little bit, and that Green Book provided the hope, sort of the map and the guide for where they could go safely. Could you share a little bit more background on Victor Green and the Green Book that he published? And just going back to the dates that you mentioned, right? It's 1936 to 1967. And just for context, I know my grandfather and my father were alive during those times. So this was not that long ago that we're discussing right now.
2: No. And, you know, that's the thing. I mean, that's why Ron became such a pivotal and crucial part of this story because he had lived through it. And most of us, you know, of, I'm in my fifties now. Yeah. Realize it. It was a generation ago. So the thing about Victor Green, that's so incredible too, is before I hope I don't forget to mention, so I'll mention it now, but Victor and Alma Green, Alma was his wife. They were the creators of the Green Book and they're being inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame, this year. I'm so excited. And I'm actually going to be taking, I'm going to be receiving the award on their behalf, which is crazy, (laughs) crazy cool. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's so well-deserved, but it's just so great that, you know, we're finally really celebrating this man who had a seventh grade education. I mean, it was Victor who started the Green Book, his wife, like I said, she was a huge part of the success and the longevity of the Green Book. She becomes a publisher once Victor Green dies. In 1960, he passes. And she's a publisher and editor. And then it's almost an all-female-run publication. It may be, there's only one name on the masthead that has initials, and we don't know the gender of that person, but everybody else listed was female. So, it was a very innovative and exciting publication for so many reasons regardless of the fact that it was saving black people's lives. I mean, you know, that was its purpose. But the reality of how it shifted into this really dynamic, fascinating, you know, it's there's photographs, there's all these different kinds of businesses in it. I mean, it's not like a typical AAA guide or any other travel guide. Your listeners can go to the Schaumburg's website. If you Google NYPL, New York Public Library, Green Book, They've digitized about 24 editions of the Green Book, so you can flip through them and see just how varied they are. But Victor Green, you know, he was a postal worker from Harlem, was basically solving his own problem. 1935, there's a major, major riot that happens. And because Harlem, even though most people assume it's a black mecca for arts and, you know, and commerce, it really was still very segregated at that time. And half the places on 125th Street, Black folks couldn't be in or they'd have to sit in the mezzanine level. They couldn't, you know, there were still all of these rules and segregation. And the story, we believe, is one of Victor Green's friends who was Jewish would go up to the Borscht Belt, go up north, and he would basically use a kosher guide. And Victor Green thought, well, that's really interesting. We could probably use something like that for Black folks. And so that, among other Things that may have influenced, and we believe is why he, you know, how he came up with the idea. However, it's important people know that the Green Book was not the first Black travel guide. The first one was in 1930, and it was called Hackley and Harrison's. It was only in publication for a year. And then the Green Book comes on board in 36, and there were nearly a dozen Black travel guides, you know, after that from the 30s to the 70s. So the reason why the Green Book, though, was so popular and had the widest readership. And the longest publication is, I believe, due to Alma Green's Relentless, just because Victor worked as a postal worker full-time. Alma was holding down the fort. They had their business. They had an office above Small's Paradise in Harlem. And so she was really, you know, critical in terms of all those days while he was working, she was holding down the fort.
1: It's awesome. And I mean, the expansion that you described going from maybe like 17 pages at the first edition to like hundred something pages, you know, by the time the sixties were rolling around and the comprehensive information that was included, not just on where black people could find gas to fuel their cars, but hairdressers, like you talk about the women owned businesses that were featured, you talk about where people can stay in in the lodging houses or tourist homes, I guess is what they were called, not just hotels. I mean, it was the guide for how to travel the U.S. safely. And I kept having jaw-dropping moments when I was reading your book. You know, you shared that the beaches in Long Island, which is where I'm from, were open to Black people, but that the Long Island Expressway was built with overpasses, with clearances too low for public buses to pass under so that Black people who would use those buses could not get to the beach. And I was just like, oh my gosh, right? The PGA, right? People watch golf. They explicitly said in 1943 that only members of the Quote, Caucasian race were allowed to join, and that was not removed until 1962. I was like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) so what surprised you the most in researching this book?
2: Well, unfortunately, you know, the thing about the Robert Moses story is I'm glad you mentioned that that doesn't get talked about that much when I do these interviews because he's the man who built those overpasses so low that people who were at buses, mostly black and brown people, could not get to the beach. And the liberation of having your own car meant you had this freedom to do things like that. And there were plenty of middle-class Black folks who were using the Green Book. It wasn't just, you know, there's this assumption that because of the struggles and the inequities in our system, you know, there's always been a larger percentage of Black folks who don't have as much because of institutional racism, but there's plenty of Black people who do have means. And so the Green Book was also this guide for, you know, there were things like, the Waldorf Astoria, there were all of these major fancy places that were in the Green Book for people who had money. And so, yeah, of course, if you had a car, you had privilege, and you could go anywhere you want, you could go to Jones Beach, it was in the Green Book, and you could get through those up, you know, but the thing about these, the lower overpasses that we still, I live in New York City, that it's still a nuisance today, that they're so low and to know, and there's plenty of books and historians that have written about Robert Moses for people who want to He was a major parks planner and he did hundreds of projects that, you know, had, he was extremely popular and prolific in his work. So he was busy. And a lot of the racism that really spurned his design that we live with today, because it's part of our infrastructure, is just pretty telling. And so when you have the South being demonized, right, for having the Jim Crow signs and saying, oh, they were wrong and the Jim Crow South was so bad because they were racist and the North was so much more liberated and the West was, it's like, no, we weren't. We went through other incredibly, I mean, the extremes that we went through that were so underhanded and covert operations (laughs) to make sure that black folks did not mix with whites was so, to me, much more dangerous because how do you fight something that you can't prove or see? You know, Is it just by coincidence that you didn't see black folks at the beach? It's like, no, this was all orchestrated for a reason. And I feel like the simplicity and the honesty of the South to just put up a sign and saying, we don't want you here, to me is so much more refreshing than having these systems in place and you can't quite put your finger on why you know something's wrong but you can't fight something you can't see. And so to me, you know, that's why it was important for me to write that part of the book. And I think that um, people like who've lived in these places that now realize like, oh, I never thought, you know, I never knew why. I mean, obviously, Nicole Hannah-Jones writes about this in 1619 project, you know, this is becoming more part of how we see our present that's been influenced by these severe forms of racism, you know, in our DNA, in our past, in this country. You've
1: traveled the country so many times for so many projects, but was there anything that surprised you in researching this particular book?
2: Yes, that's what I was saying. Unfortunately, I guess, okay, I'll say two things quickly. I was surprised at how much I didn't know, given that I had taken all these Black history courses in college. There were 200 anti-lynching laws that didn't pass. I mean, I knew racism was a problem, but to the extent of how many times we tried to pass civil rights legislation and how many parallels we have to today, you know, the Jeff Sessions of the world, and those things have been in place. And when you look at, obviously, you know, Roe versus Wade, I mean, all of these things have been in play for decades and decades and decades. And I think this relentlessness of the extreme Right, has been very effective. They just weighed it out. And so it's a lot of the same tactics, but to see it in so black and white, there were so many things that I was like, wow, that looks just like what's happening now. So that was interesting. I was really surprised at the role of women in the green book. And like you said, there were so many women that were running these businesses. That's why I have a chapter called women in the green book. That was a nice surprise. I didn't think I'd have enough material to... But once I kept digging, it was really, and this was at a time when women couldn't have bank accounts or have credit cards, and yet they ran businesses. There was a sex club in the green book. That was surprising. <laughs> there was a female architect who you know, built a green book site. So things like that were really were wonderful. But I have to say, about every few weeks because of Reading about all of the stories of another Black family being humiliated on the beach and not being able to, you could go to the beach, but you couldn't use the lockers, right? So you would go to the beach and realize you have to change your clothes on the beach, you know, which is humiliating. And then you go out in the water and you come back and somebody's like, they've soiled your clothes or stolen your clothes. Those stories, reading them over and over again, it was just the psychic weight of this history. Every few weeks would just get to me, and I would just have to break down and cry, and I would push away from my desk and just, you know, the next day just come up and say, you know, I got to fight the power. I'd sing "Public Enemy" in the back of my head, <laughs> like
0: just, just keep going, you know. So it it was a journey
2: writing this.
0: Thank you for sharing that. You know, first of all, I'm so glad you did keep going and wrote this, and second. You know, I think in your answer to that last question, you were talking about sort of how history repeats itself, right, and, and um, overt racism versus covert racism. And so many of those themes, as you mentioned, we see today. And I was, so as the granddaughter of historian, right, I really look for those too. So I appreciated that you included so much of that history in the book, right, along with the stories because it is so important and you know as i was reading your book it kept bringing up to me you know sort of the theme of policing of black bodies right in space and it sort of made me think about this podcast that i was listening to that drew a straight line from reconstruction and the slave patrols right that sort of arose out of reconstruction to the murder of Trayvon Martin and how we have continued as a society to police black bodies where sometimes when we police other bodies, people get very angry and upset. Yet throughout history, policing Black bodies has been okay. And then as I was reading the book and you start talking about different forms of transportation, right? The Green Book expanded from car travel to trains and planes. And I was wondering, how did you see that policing sort of shift over time as the modes of transportation opened? Or did it shift at all?
2: Well, like you said, we have this really long lineage
0: where you can trace
2: it back to the, you know, slave patrols in the back of the book. I mean, I really do have a whole section in the back that addresses the mass incarceration issue. I do think it's the civil rights crisis of our time. And it is a thing that still keeps me up at night. And I've never been able to understand how you know, I'm not blaming Obama, but in a time when we have a black president that nearly one in black, one in three black young men are in jail. And it is when I was, you know, I opened the book with Ron in the back seat of the car and your readers can read about the chauffeur's hat story. And then I'm in the front seat of the car at the end of the book with my mother. And I'm about the same age. I'm seven years old as Ron was. And I'm seeing these men chained up in a field in Texas, where I was you know, we were living when I was really young, and I said, "Mom, I thought slavery was over because it looked just like the picture of slaves in a field, <laughs> and we're driving through this sugarcane field in Texas and suburbs in Houston. And I said, "I thought slavery was over." And she was like, "Oh, it is, honey." And I said, "Well, why in the world, like, why are these men chained up?" She's like, "Oh, because they're prisoners." And I said, "Well, then, why are they all black?" You know And she could not explain institutional racism to a seven-year-old, I was ready to have that conversation. I thought, this is wrong. Like, this in my soul, something is not right here. And, you know, I think we get to a place where we're so complacent. We've seen so much despair and so much poverty. And the communities that these Green Book sites were in have changed so much. I mean, these were not, if Victor Green saw the way that what has happened... The level of poverty and crime that has happened in these neighborhoods that were once vibrant, that had businesses, you know, again, urban renewal decimated a lot of these communities. There's freeways now where there would be like 20 green book sites. You know, these were viable businesses; they were self-sustaining. But this idea of integration that was so romantic as an idea, and it didn't need to happen. But we're You know, my stepfather said you know, it was the worst thing that happened to black folks. Because we lost, the people who could afford to move did, who had the means or who had, you know, opportunities with education, they left these communities. And we are left with a very intense situation now where they're completely overpoliced. There was a group out of Chicago doing this project called Million Dollar Blocks that I write about in the book, where you look at the blocks that they have rounded up nearly 50 to 80% of the residents that have been put into jail, that are in and out of jail. And if you estimate the amount of money it costs to incarcerate one person, they're called million dollar blocks because they've, we've spent billions of dollars locking people up. And in some communities, millions of dollars locking people up and yet disinvested into their education systems and all these other things that would keep folks out of jail. So we know, we understand the problem as a culture, as a country. And yet politically, we still seem to have no power to change it. But I think, you know, when I wrote Overground Railroad, I was very, I knew it was an issue that was so important to me. And my biggest fear, honestly, when the book came out, I thought people are going to say, what does a green book have to do with prisons? You know, so making that thread, but showing that history and all those levels of over-policing in Ferguson. Ferguson was a sundown town. Go figure, right? Right. But like really stitching that thread together so carefully and trying to really show people this is why we are here now. And this is why we have so much work to do. Because as we're learning with Roe v. Wade, just because we pass a law does not mean the problem is over and that we can just say, oh, we did that, right? That's not who we are as a country. And that's not how things work, especially when it comes to these serious civil rights issues. So... You know, I'm glad you guys are doing this podcast in terms of just opening people's eyes to, because we're you, when you're in your life, you're just looking forward and you don't, you know, who has time to really put all this stuff together? So it's nice to have conversations where we get to really, you know, put the pieces together. So maybe it'll make sense to the people who can make change, who can do something.
0: I really appreciate that because I think you're absolutely right. We do look forward a lot, and we try not to look back. But in order to understand how we got here, we have to understand where we came from and what got us there and what factors are still in play now. So I appreciate that carefulness, right, which which you laid it out in the Green Book. And as you were talking about that disparity in towns and places, and I just came back from spending a week in Baton Rouge... And, you know, we're driving through and my husband says, this looks exactly like nothing has changed since I was a child here. And nothing has changed basically in the parts of town that we were in since maybe the sixties, right? Except everything is gone sort of, there's just, there aren't a lot of businesses there anymore. There isn't the infrastructure there. And so it's a living reminder, which not everyone sees, right? Of where we are and how we got there. So I really thank you for highlighting that for everyone in the green book. And you mentioned the end of the book and the very first book that we read in our dear white woman book club was the new Jim Crow. Oh, wonderful. Good for you. And we, so we are huge fans of Michelle Alexander and the work and, you know, I really loved the way that you Structured that at the end of the book, because you talk about certain ways to get involved and certain ways that you're involved and certain sort of takeaways for the readers. So as you were mentioning the parallels with today, I wanted to ask, what lessons do you think we can take from the Green Book and your research and or that period of time, really, as we've talked about with how we can make change today? And can you share with our listeners some of the ways that you think making change is the most impactful right now in this sphere?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, again, I, you know, I applaud you for reading The New Jim Crow, because a lot of people don't take the time to do that. Um, of course, there's Ava DuVernay's 13th, which is basically the documentary version of that, that. People want the quicker version. But yeah, I put a section in the back of my book called What We Can Do, and it was inspired by Michelle Alexander and Ta-Nehisi Coates and a lot of other folks, Nicole Hannah-Jones and Henry Louis Gates. and And I think it's There's no magic bullet, especially after the George Floyd protests. I got so many calls from all of my well-meaning white liberal friends who were just all upset and in tears. And after Charlottesville, the same thing. You know, like, oh, my God, what's happening? And of course, me and Ron, we're like, well, yeah, we're not surprised. But, you know, I think even if we are all, regardless of our race, participating in this system, so you can be as anti you know, prison, mass incarceration as you want to be. But your 401k is more than likely funding this prison industrial complex. It just is. I mean, I don't have index funds for that reason. I've been, you know, investing in the stock market, but I'm very careful about making sure that it's not feeding this monster. So I would say, you know, check with your financial advisor, see if you're funding this prison industrial complex. Stop you know, supporting it. Hold your district attorney, your DA accountable. You know, find out what they're charging and plea bargaining policies are. That's 90% of the reason why a lot of people are still sitting in jail. Have no business being there. Obviously, you know, Brian Stevenson is an incredibly important and powerful force. You know, he runs the equal justice initiative. Go on his website and see how you can get involved. I mean he's like the Nelson Mandela of our time and of our country. He's always up to good things. So in terms of, you know, get involved, obviously, in your local elections, I think, you know, if you are a business owner, when people would call me and say, what can I do? I'd say, well, I don't know. You tell me. What can you do? What do you do? Do you have a business? Take the felony box off your bid. There's a box of, you know, if you've ever been convicted of a felony, take that off. If you own property or you rent to people, take that box off. Because most Black folks, especially in these communities that are over-policed, And as you've learned with Michelle Alexander, finally realized that most of them do have felonies and it does not mean anything other than they are trapped in a system that has targeted them. And I'm not saying everybody's a victim or that every person who has a felony has been wrongly accused. I'm not saying that, but you've got to let people play on an open, you know, fair, open ground. I mean, it just, to me, it's take that off any applications that you may have. Mentor a kid who's from a vulnerable community. I think there's you know, other things you can do, but I think mostly everybody has their own power in their own way. And if your heart is in a place where you are tired of accepting these norms, figure out where in your community and where in your life you can make a difference. And I think as especially white women, who are allies and want to be a part of the solution. Don't rely on black people to fix it. Like so many people will come to me and say, what do I do? It's like, you tell me what you can do. I can't fix the problem of racism because I didn't, you know, black folks didn't create this system. You know, it's created by white folks, you dismantle it. You know, if we could have fixed it, Lord knows we would have by now. Lord knows, I mean, we have tried everything, right? So yeah, I think it takes a village and I think, you know, people have especially white women, I think they have more power than they think. And, you know, we're here to cheer on any new ideas you guys have and share them with us, but don't come to us asking us to fix a problem because we're already really tired of trying to, you know. <laughs>
1: No, thank you for saying what we have said in our circles, too. For so much of this, you know, don't ask black people. You have the power. You have more power than you think and do something. It's about doing the things as opposed to just thinking in your heart that you're a good person and an anti-racist. We still have to do the things. And so <laughs> I appreciate all of this conversation. You know, is there what else have we not asked that you think is important for our audience to hear?
2: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I feel like it's such a we're in such Interesting times. You know, I feel like, I mean, for me, I think it's important to, and this is Brian Stevenson's, I'm borrowing this from him, where he talks about basically getting out of your, you know, comfort zone and proximity is really important. So it's so easy for us to live in our bubbles. And especially during this time, you know, with the pandemic, and I've been on the road a lot since the publication of the book, and I've seen the country change in pretty fundamental ways. That are palpable and it's disturbing, but it's fascinating. The more we get entrenched in our own, you know, bubble of comfort, the less we understand each other. And I see all that boiling, you know, to extremes right now. And my fear, which I usually don't, I've always been that person when I was on the road, I would always want to, you know, I take all the back roads, I don't drive the freeways. I make sure that I I get a sense of what the pulse of the country is. Um, And then I go back to my New York life, where, you know, I'm comfortable with what I know in my community here. But it's really important to challenge for everybody to challenge themselves in ways to understand, you know, what it means to be the quote, unquote, other, I think it allows more empathy. I have a book now that just came out, the young adult version of the, of Overground Railroad, it's a YA, it's ages 12 and up. So for those of you who have kids, you know, get the YA edition, maybe read it together, read the adult version and the young adult with your child. Because I think of all those people who brought their teens and teens with them to the George Floyd protests, there's no context for understanding why, you know, it's easy to point to that and say, yeah, that was wrong. That man was murdered on our streets and in front of, you know, many cameras and we can all point to that and say it's wrong, but we don't understand why. And we are still part of this, you know, we can't fix a problem that we don't understand. And so I just encourage folks to figure out where your blind spot is with this. And only you know what that is. You know, and if it's that you grew up and basically was probably a sundown town (laughs) and didn't know it, you know, go to more well-established black communities, you know, have more experiences with all different kinds of black people from different classes and realize that, you know, we're very, we're pretty diverse group of people within blackness. You know, I live in Harlem, so there's probably 50 different kinds of, you know, black folks I can see every day on the streets, you know, we're all different, but I feel like it's really important to um, figure out what your own blind spots are and challenge yourself In that way, because you won't regret it. I just think it makes life more interesting. It will make you a well rounded person. It makes you a better parent and it makes you a better human. So I think that's what we need to all hopefully we're striving for. Agreed.
1: These are grown up skills, these are a part of being good humans. A hundred percent agreed. So thank you for saying that. All right. So where else can people find you? Obviously, your book is Overground Railroad. Where else can people find all of your work if they want to learn more?
2: So uh, they can go to tailormadeculture.com, which is my, you know, I've written a book called Counterculture, which is on older diner waitresses. I wrote a book on Route 66. I wrote a book on um, I did a project of female bullfighters in the United States, and I did a project on beauty shop culture in America. So you can see, you know, some of those projects on my website. I'm terrible at social media, but I'm at Candacey Taylor on Twitter. And on Instagram. If I don't respond, it doesn't mean I'm ignoring you. It's just I'm really bad at it. So please forgive me. But if that's the way you communicate, please do. I'm about to speak next week. I'm leaving for Seattle. My exhibition, I have an exhibition with the Smithsonian. I'm the curator and content specialist for an exhibition called the Negro Motorist Green Book. You can Google that and learn about that. It's an exhibition that's traveling the US for the next uh, three years. It's been, it'll go to 13 different venues. And it is going, it's at the Washington State Museum in Seattle, or Tacoma, right outside of Seattle. So I'm flying to Seattle next week to give a talk there and a book signing at the university bookstore. And I'll be doing a book signing at the um, Washington State Museum as well. There's a big Route 66 festival this summer in Oklahoma, in Tulsa and Oklahoma City that I'll be giving talks at both of those places. So you know, if you want to follow me, there's a place where you can sign up on my website, sign the guest book, and I'll keep you updated. But I'll be documenting more sundown towns moving forward, and really getting a sense of what's happening um, today. Because I've cataloged so many of the green book sites, I'm really looking now at these, at the history of these sundown towns. Yes.
1: That will be fascinating as well. Thank you so much for doing all of this work. It is, I will include links to all of the events that you've just mentioned in our show notes. So thank you Mm, so, so much. Thank you
2: very much. I'm so excited that we got to do this and I appreciate, yeah, it took me a while to get back to you because I was on the road, but I'm so glad that we were able to do this.
1: You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock! Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.